We turn this morning in our Bibles to, he, uh, not Hebrews, but Romans chapter 1, and we'll be reading verses 8 through 13, Romans chapter 1, verses 8 through 13. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise, the wise and to the foolish. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. From verses 1 through 15 of this chapter, Paul has been in the introductory phase of his epistle. And the thing that sets apart verses 8 through 15 from the rest of his introduction is its largely autobiographical nature. There's nothing in verses 8 through 15 that is overtly doctrinal, that is expressly theological. Ever before he begins to expound the rich doctrinal truths of the gospel, Paul, we see in this passage, gets intensely personal. He opens up his heart to these Roman Christians, as it were. In this passage, he could well have written precisely what he wrote to the Thessalonian Christians in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 18, which says, Being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. Paul held the believers at Rome dear to his heart. And whereas in verses 8 through 10, we see his prayerful regard for these Christians, we see in verses 11 through 13, his edifying intentions for them. And I want to look this morning at just the first point, his prayerful regard for them. His prayerful regard for them, verses 8 through 10. It doesn't take much of an in-depth reading of Paul's letters to realize that Paul was by and large a man who was given to prayer. And more so, a man who was devoted to praying for others. Here in verse 8, he makes mention of the fact that he prays for the believers at Rome and that in so doing, he is thankful to God for them. And the reason he's thankful to God for them is because of the far-reaching reputation of their faith in the Lord Jesus. 
the fact that their faith in Christ had gone viral, so to speak, to use present-day terminology. He says there in verse 8, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Paul says, I'm grateful to God when I think of how much your faith is being broadcast throughout the entire world. In the New Testament, the word faith, we know, is used in at least two senses. One, it refers to that fixed body of truth, that is, truths related to the gospel, which truths are recorded for us in Scripture, which truths constitutes what the apostle Jude speaks of in Jude chapter 3, Jude verse 3, as the faith that was once delivered to all the saints. Two, the word faith refers to one's personal response of trust in Christ, commitment to Christ, as in Acts chapter 20, verse 21, which speaks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So that the question becomes, in which of these two senses was Paul using the word faith? Was he referring to that body of truths to which all Christians subscribe, or was he referring to their personal faith in the Lord Jesus? The latter seems more likely. In fact, Paul is concerned throughout this epistle with exercising faith in the Lord Jesus, and so the personal subjective response of faith is what he has here in view. These Christians at Rome we could say, had a living, robust faith in Christ which caught the attention of all who came in contact with them. And in this regard, they were like the Thessalonian Christians of whom Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 8, For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, Paul said of these Christians in Thessalonica, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. We have to ask a question this morning, and it's good for us to ask this question. What is the nature of true, saving, genuine faith in Christ? The nature of genuine, saving faith, I would say, is often misunderstood. And the fact is, true, saving faith in Christ is more than simply intellectual assent to a body of truths we find in Scripture. True saving faith is more than verbal confession of the gospel. It's more than saying, I believe in Christ or I believe that Jesus Christ is Savior and Lord. Yes, true saving faith involves an intelligent understanding and acceptance and confession of the facts of the gospel, but that, you see, is not what true, saving, genuine faith is all about. Scripture, in fact, warns that some may have what might be regarded as not true, genuine, saving faith. It warns, for example, Scripture warns and warns very forcefully of the possibility of possessing a dead faith, a dead faith. 
The Apostle James speaks of this in James chapter 2, verse 14, where he states, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but has not works? Can that faith save him? In fact, James uses the illustration. He says, listen, if a brother or sister is destitute and is in need of daily food, and one of you says to him, depart in peace, be warmed, and be filled, yet you give not that person the things that are necessary for the body, how then can you have faith? He then states in verse 17 of that same chapter, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Second, Scripture warns that one may have what it portrays as a demonic faith. A demonic faith, because James goes on to argue in James chapter 2, verses 18 and 19, he says this, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is only one God. The devils also believe and tremble. Let me say this, there's nobody who has faith like demons. Listen, they know the gospel. They believe the gospel, but the sad fact is they will never be saved by the gospel. Third, we are warned of the possibility of a deceptive faith, a deceptive faith. And this is suggested by the warning of our Lord Jesus in Matthew chapter 7, in his Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 23, where he says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Listen to our Lord Jesus as he warns concerning a spurious faith. He says in verse 22, On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness." There, here was a set of people who clearly had faith in the Lord Jesus, so much so they characterized him, they referred to him as Lord, and they were passionate about it. They said, Lord, Lord, they were earnest in their service for him, and yet, sadly enough, they were not truly saved. According to our Lord Jesus, my friends, that vital missing ingredient of their faith was obedience to the word of God. Now, we are living in a time when the gospel is very muddied. We have been talking about the gospel in recent weeks. And one of the great fallacies we have in our time is this idea that repentance, such words as repentance and obedience, have no place in the gospel because the moment we begin to speak of obedience, the moment we begin to speak of repentance, we are getting into the territory of legalism. In fact, some years ago, I had a young man confronted me with Romans chapter 1 verse 5, and I said, look, part of what it means to be saved, we are saved by faith, but that faith must work itself in obedience. I never saw that young man again. 
And yet, that is what the Word of God teaches. Listen, my friends, we are not saved by faith plus obedience. We are not saved by faith plus works. But here's the point. The Word of God teaches that true saving faith, which is faith in Christ alone, is not going to be alone. It is going to be accompanied by the fruit of works, by the fruit of obedience, by the fruit of repentance. And how many there are today who have been falsely assured that because they have said a prayer, receiving Christ as Savior, got baptized, joined the church, then that automatically means they are saved. Let me say this, that without a doubt, one must by faith, as we said, receive Christ. One must trust Christ and have faith in Christ, faith in Christ alone apart from works if one is to be saved problem is this, that while many profess to be saved, while many profess to have faith in Christ, they do not have the receipt to show for it. They do not have the fruit of obedience, as Jesus said in Matthew 7, 23. They do not have the evidence or evidences of true saving faith. They give no evidence of having been soundly converted. They exhibit nothing of a regenerated, transformed life. They lead carnal, worldly lives. They show no regard for church. They show no regard for personal Bible reading. No regard for the study of God's word. No regard for the things of God. No regard for prayer, for Bible reading. They show no interest in or regard for maintaining a testimony for the Lord Jesus Christ. No love for the Lord Jesus, no love for their fellow believers in Christ. They are given to animosity, discord, and ill will toward others. By the way, when we read John's gospel, actually John's epistle, John makes it clear that part of what it means to be truly saved, to have true faith in Jesus Christ, is to love the brethren. Is to love the brethren, is to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. In short, theirs is a faith, we would say, that is devoid of the fruit of works. And interestingly, just before Lord Jesus gave this warning in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 23, it's interesting to note what he had discussed in the previous paragraph, because in the previous paragraph, he had spoken of the need for fruit bearing. Our Lord Jesus said there in the preceding verses, he pointed out to the fact that a tree is known by the fruit that it bears. And he says there in verse 19 that every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Once again, whereas we are saved by faith alone apart from works, such a faith is one that will inevitably lead to works to a life of obedience, to a life of submission and surrender to God, surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ. Consider, for example, John 3, verse 36. John 3, verse 36 says the gospel very clearly. Here's what the word of God says. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. 
This is what John goes on to say in that same verse. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. What is the Apostle John doing here? The Apostle John, for the Apostle John, faith and obedience are not antithetical to each other. They are complementary to each other, so that if a person is saved yet has no heart for God, no heart for the things of God, is not exhibiting the fruit of obedience to the will of God, then that person's profession of faith becomes suspect. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 8, Paul was reminded of the Thessalonians what he described as their work of faith, which he defined in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 9 as their turning to God from idols to serve the living and true God. He was thankful for their faith. He was thankful that their faith was being broadcast around the world. But yet, how does he characterize that faith? He says they turned to God from idols to serve the true and living God. Let me say this. If a person claims to be saved, yet is clinging to some reigning idol, is living in some known sin, is not serving God by way of obedience and submission to his word, Then, according to the word of God, that person needs to examine his or examine himself, examine herself as to whether he or she is in the faith. We are not needlessly afflicting those who should be comforted this morning, but we are, by the grace of God, afflicting those who should not be comfortable. I trust there is none like that in our midst. Paul constantly thanked God for these Christians. Why? We talk about the Thessalonian Christians. He says this, We also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, that's faith, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which, here it comes, the word of God, which is at work in you, believers. Is the word of God at work in your heart, in your life? And then Paul goes on to explain about these Christians in terms of the genuineness of their faith. He says this, For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffer the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. Paul says, listen, one of the ways we know you are saved was because you began to imitate. You began to mimic what it means to be Christian. And just as Paul was always thankful to God for the Thessalonian Christians, so he says here in his epistle to the Romans that he was always thankful to God for these Roman Christians. Why? Because their faith had gone worldwide. People were talking about their faith. People were talking about how exemplary they were as followers of Christ. People the world over were talking about the living, active faith, these Christians exhibited. And the question this morning is, if faith is in fact a matter of the heart, which it is, how then are people able to speak of the faith? How then were, we should say, people able to speak of the faith of these Roman Christians? If faith is a private transaction, if it's a transaction of the heart, how comes people were broadcasting the faith of these Christians, the fact that these Christians were genuinely believing in Christ. People were able to do so, you see, because of how these Christians behaved. 
They were able to do so because of how these Christians conducted themselves. Their faith was evidenced, we could say, by their professed submission to the Lord. It was evidenced by their obedience to the Lord. How do we know that? Because Paul, in fact, tells us so. In Romans chapter 16, verse 19, he commends them as follows. He says this, he's writing again to the Roman Christians. He says there in Romans 16, 19, For your obedience is known to all so that I rejoice over you. Here in chapter 1, he says your faith is known abroad. Here in chapter 16, verse 19, he says your obedience is known to all. What is Paul doing here? Once again, just like the Apostle John, Paul is establishing the fact that faith in Christ, through saving faith in Christ and obedience to Christ, are not antithetical to each other. They are not conflicting with each other. They are part and parcel of what it means to be truly saved. One man puts it like this, and rightly so. He says this, quote, Faith is of the heart, invisible to men. Obedience is of the conduct that may be observed. When a man obeys God, he gives the only possible evidence that in his heart he believes God, end quote. And so by way of application, the question this morning is, if people were talking about you, if conversations were being held about you in different places, what are people most likely to talk about you when they make mention of your name? What would it be? What would they be talking about? Would they be talking about your faith in Christ? Would they be saying, look, so-and-so is remarkable for faith in Christ? I don't know what's happened to her. I don't know what's happened to him. But I can tell you this. He or she is a man of God, a man, a woman of Christ, committed to the Lord Jesus Christ. question is, how exemplary is your professed faith in Christ? Is it genuine? To bring it closer home, do you know yourself to be truly born again, to be truly saved? Somebody says, why is Patrick preaching like this? Listen, and we say it all the time. Never must we take it that the people before us, the people we know are necessarily saved. The gospel belongs in the church as it belongs on the street. The gospel is to be preached to professing Christians. It is to be professed even to, it is to be preached even to those in the church. Why? Because it is very much possible that persons could be deluded, could be deceived as to what constitutes true, genuine, saving faith. The question is, is your faith for real? Is your faith truly in the Lord Jesus? Is it a transforming faith? Is your life manifesting that change that comes with true belief, true faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. In terms of his prayerful regard for, the, for these Christians at Rome, not only does Paul express his thankfulness to God for them, but second, he expresses his continual intercession for them. His continual intercession for them, verses 9 and 10. And there he informs them that without ceasing... He always mentions them in his prayers. 
Read his epistles, his epistles to the Ephesians, as we see in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, his epistle to the the Philippians, as we see in Philippians chapter 1, 8 through 12, his epistle to the Colossians, as we see in Colossians 1, 9 through 11, and you'll see there that Paul was a man who was ever in the habit of praying for God's people. And this he took very seriously, so much so he could appeal to God as a witness, as he does here in verse 9. Here's what he says as he tells them how much he's praying for them. He says this, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you in my prayers. What a challenge. If not rebuke to us, to you, to me. What a challenge, if not rebuke to our own prayer lives. For the truth is, many a Christian, many a believer in Christ is often given to self-centered praying than they are to praying for others. Do you find that true in your life? Isn't it very much the case that quite often, if we are not careful, if not for the grace of God, we are simply praying for who? For, For I, me, and myself. Me, myself, and I. Why could Paul pray in such a caring manner? Why could Paul have prayed in such a selfless manner, focusing on the needs of others, the well-being of others? Why could he have prayed like that? Why could he be so caring in his prayers for others? And I believe the clue is in verse 9. In verse 9, because if you look at verse 9, Paul, by his own admission, had a heart for the service of Christ. Because there in verse 9, he makes reference to the fact that he serves God with his spirit in the gospel of his son. Paul's service to God, we see here, did not come about from a sense of legalism, a legalistic sense of duty. It came not from a sense of grudging obligation, rather Paul's service to God rose from the depths of his heart. And we can mark this down as a fact. The truth is where there is a heart for the Lord, there will of necessity be a heart for his people. Where there is a heart for God, there will of necessity be a heart for his people. And the thing that's most remarkable about Paul as he prays for these Christians, as he lets them know how much he has been praying for them, was that Paul had never been to Rome. Paul had not met many of these Christians. He did not know them. And yet Paul, we see here, was intensely engaged in prayer for these believers, surely a lesson to us that you and I need not be acquainted with Christians in other places in order to pray for them. That even though geographically separated from other believers by at vast distance, we can still pray for them. We can pray for them because not limited by space, culture, or any other factor, prayer is that powerful. We're dealing with something spiritual. Paul had never been to Rome up to this point. Paul had never seen, never met many of these Christians, and yet Paul was praying for them. The temptation you and I face is to be parochial in our prayers, to be narrow in our prayer. And the challenge here from the Apostle Paul is this, that you and I, by God's grace, should expand our prayer horizons. 
Indeed, with respect to the duty of praying, we are commanded in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 18. Here's what Paul says with respect to praying. He says, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Not just the Christians we know. Not just the people of our church. In fact, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, we're instructed to make supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving for all men, for kings, and for all who are in authority. That's what the Word of God says. And so Paul's prayerful regard for the Christians at Rome provides us a lesson, as I said, in the matter of becoming expansive as far as our prayer horizons are concerned. Praying not just for our needs, not just for our desires, not just for our assembly, not just for the persons with whom we are personally acquainted, but praying for others with respect to their needs and concerns. Now one final thing I'll show you this morning just before we close, and I know time is going. I want us to see in verse 10 something very important in Paul's prayer life. And what was this? Paul gave prominence to the matter of God's will in his prayers. Because notice what he says there, always in my prayers, always he says in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. Paul clearly did not assume that just because he was doing the Lord's work, that just because he was engaged in service for the Lord, then everything would automatically turn out right, that he would, be, he would have a smooth, unhindered sailing in his travels and labors. More so, Paul did not assume that just because he prayed about a matter that God would automatically respond positively as he, Paul, saw it. Paul was ever mindful of the importance of God's will in all areas of his life. To begin with, he was conscious of the fact that he was a called apostle. You'll hear him saying that many times in his introduction to the various churches he wrote Paul an apostle by the will of God we see that in his introduction to the Corinthian epistle to the epistle to Timothy he recognized that he was open to the fact that as he carried out his ministry his movements were all subjected to the will of God how much of God's will do you and I recognize and give prominence to in our lives for example, Acts chapter 18, verse 21, he was leaving the Jews at Ephesus, and here's what he said to them, I will return to you if God wills. To the Corinthians, he wrote in 1 Corinthians 4, 19, I will come to you if the Lord wills. Later in Romans 15, 32, he requests that the Roman believers pray for him that by God's will, that by God's will, he may come to them with joy and be refreshed by their company. We see Paul was a man who was ever mindful of God's will. Paul never ran his own show. Everything he did was subjected to the will and way of God. And this should be our attitude as well, particularly as we consider the fact that God alone knows the future. That God alone knows the future and that none of our plans, none of our purposes will ever come to fruition unless God so wills, unless God so permits. 
In fact, in practical ways, Paul learned the importance of recognizing the will of God. For example, in his second missionary journey, you remember as he traveled with Silas and Timothy, where they were forbidden, Luke tells us in Acts 16, verse 6, they were forbidden to preach the word of God in Asia. We read further in Acts 16, 7, and when they had come up to Mysia, Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. Why didn't the Lord allow them from entering these territories? Because it was not his will. It was not his purpose that they should go into other territories. And if we read the context, we see that God actually wanted them to go into where? Macedonia, where Lydia would be saved, where the Philippian jailer would be saved. God's will is critical. God's will is crucial for your life and mine. Paul here in Romans 1.10 lets the Romans know how that he had always been praying, asking that somehow, somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you, he says. Evidently, he had been praying for quite a while. Perhaps months, perhaps for years. And even as he wrote these words, we sense something of a bit of frustration in Paul. Paul, as it were, was saying, I hope at not, no, not at last I can come to you. And yet, even as he eagerly hoped, even as he eagerly anticipated visiting with these Christians, notice his was an attitude of openness to the will of God. Asking, he says, that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. Paul understood that his having a successful trip, his having a successful journey to Rome was all in the hands of God. It was up to God. And how critical a factor the will of God was for the Apostle Paul is suggested in verse 30 because there Paul went on to inform these Roman believers. He says, I do not want for you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented. We learned something very interesting here concerning Paul and the will of God. Notice that Paul understood the, the, the place of human responsibility. Paul, although he prayed and although he planned and it did not work out, he did not stop and say, well, it's not the will of God. Paul kept at it. Paul kept at it. He kept praying. He kept pushing. And God providentially did not allow it. That's a tremendous lesson for us. We ought to pray. We ought to pray perseveringly. But here's the point. At the end of the day, you and I must be open to God's will, to God's will. As to what prevented him from coming to see these Christians at Rome, Paul does not say. He didn't say at, at least at this point. But if you look at Romans chapter 15, 17 through 21, we are winding down in just a minute or so. In Romans 15, 17 through 22, he explains that he was often hindered from coming to them. Why? Because he was committed to fulfilling his evangelistic task in other regions. That's why he was unable to come. Consistently, Paul gave due regard to God's will. The question is, to what extent do you factor the will of God in your prayers, in your life? You know, the Apostle James will chide believers who take matters into their own hands, who live their lives from day to day as though, as though their lives are in their hands and 
James chides them. He says that in the light of the brevity, the uncertainty that surrounds our time here on earth, verse 15, instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Is that part of your language? If the Lord wills? Is that part of the spirit in which you pray the Lord's will be done? Well, let me close by saying this. Very, very important lesson. Watch this. Paul prayed, you see, that by God's will, he would be able to visit the Christians at Rome. Question is, was his prayer answered? Yes, it was answered. God providentially allowed him to go to Rome. But how did he go to Rome? How did he end up in Rome? He ended up there a prisoner under house arrest in the charge of two guards. Let me say this. Some of our prayers will never be answered based on our expectation, which brings us back to the point that at the end of the day, whenever we pray, we ought to have such disposition that we can sincerely say to God, Lord, whatever your will is, and we must believe that whatever he sends in our lives providentially at the end of the day is his blessed and sweet will. It might not be what we like, but it's the goodwill of God. Yes, we pray, and we may express our desire, which is legitimate, that we must pray, and we must purpose, and we must work, we must not give up in prayer, but at the end of the day, it is a question, it is a matter, rather, of God's will being done. Do we pray for others? Do we love the people of God? Are we passionate about the things of God? Is our faith a living, vibrant faith? Can it be evidently seen by others could they say of us there goes a genuine Christian a genuine believer in Christ may God grant that this would be so in your life and mine for his name's sake amen